welcome to episode 219 of the Truth Quest podcast. The truth about Ben Bernanke, the Nobel Prize, and the Federal Reserve. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and see discussions going on about the Federal Reserve, the Nobel Prize, Ben Bernanke, the FBI, digital currency, or green energy, please share the TruthQuest podcast with your friend. Tell them to browse the episode titles and dive into whatever topics pique their interest. Episodes are available on a host of platforms, including iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, BitChute, Rumble, and Instagram, where I post a short highlight of each show at instagram.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Whatever platform you may be listening to this on, please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a five-star rating, hit the like button, or leave a positive review. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through online advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. I want to say this right off the top. I know that this isn't the sexiest topic, but there are so many lessons embedded within it and so many dots to connect that I just couldn't resist producing this episode. Former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke was recently awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics for his writings on how government should respond to bank failures. Former Congressman and presidential candidate Ron Paul, who for many years conducted infamous inquisitions of Bernanke during congressional testimony before the House Financial Services Committee, described the award this way, quote, Honoring Bernanke for his advice on what government should do when banks fail is like giving a fire safety award to an arsonist, end quote. I couldn't agree more. This award ranks up there with Nobel's awarding of Barack Obama the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, only months after he assumed office after accomplishing exactly nothing in the Peace Department. The guy laughingly went on to preside over several wars during his eight years in office, including Afghanistan, Syria, and Yemen. But that's a topic for another episode. Let's start our quest to connect the dots by starting at the beginning. What is the Federal Reserve and why was it created? Check out episode 27 and 28 for a deep dive into the Federal Reserve, but here's a taste of what I discussed. In a nutshell, the Federal Reserve System is a legal cartel granted a monopoly on the United States money supply. It is operated at the benefit of the few under the guise of promoting and protecting public's interest. It grants Congress the ability to acquire or print money without direct taxation. The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is the title of a best-selling book about the establishment of the Federal Reserve, was created in 1913. In short, it was formed to quell competition from non-national banks, of which there were tens of thousands. You see, the big banks at the time were losing market share to the newer banks out west. In 1896, non-national banks made up 61% of the banks in America and held just over 50% of the deposits. By 1913, when the Fed was created, 71% of the banks in the country were non-national banks. They held almost 60% of all assets in the banking industry. The big boys did not like competition, so what did they do? They ran to the government to limit competition, forming the Fed. A cartel replaced competition. That's all the Federal Reserve is at the end of the day, a government-sanctioned cartel. 
a union of banks, a cartel protected by federal law. Another characteristic of the Federal Reserve is the fact that it is completely unconstitutional and should be abolished tomorrow, if not sooner. How can I make such a strange and bold statement, you ask? Because the power to issue fiat money or paper money is not enumerated to the federal government in the Constitution. As a matter of fact, it's prohibited. Additionally, in Article 1, Section 10, the states are specifically prohibited from doing anything monetarily other than gold and silver. It reads in part, No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. In Article 1, Section 8, it says Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to coin money, regulate the value thereof and a foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures. And finally, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. Notice the words used there, coin money, doesn't say print money, because pieces of paper backed by nothing are worth nothing. Bills of credit were prohibited, printed IOUs, fiat money, all prohibited by the Constitution, and yet that's the basis of our monetary system today. Let's continue to connect the dots. Money was gold and silver in the United States until the Fed came along. Even with the Fed, we held on to a semblance of a gold standard for another 60 years until Nixon unilaterally destroyed our currency in 1973. More on that in a minute. The whole purpose of getting rid of gold was to give the Fed the ability to create money without restraint. You see, under a gold standard, the federal government is forced to be responsible, forced to balance budgets, forced to make decisions about spending, forced to tell the American people, if you want welfare and warfare, we need to raise your taxes to pay for it because the printing of money option is off the table. With a gold standard, the Federal Reserve's ability to create money was limited. If dollars can be redeemed for gold, it creates a physical hard limit on government. It requires the government to be a little less dishonest. If you print too many dollars, the holders of those certificates or pieces of paper will redeem them for something of real value, i.e. gold or silver. Of course, anything that limits the restraints of federal government, anything that instills discipline, will be adamantly opposed. Former Fed chairman and criminal himself, Alan Greenspan, once said, quote, we would never have reached this position of extreme indebtedness were we on the gold standard because the gold standard is a way of ensuring that fiscal policy, that is taxes and spending, never gets out of line. Ludwig von Mises said, quote, the eminence of the gold standard consists in the fact that it makes the determination of the monetary unit's purchasing power independent of the measures of government. It rests from the hands of the economic czars, their most redoubtable instrument. And here's the money quote. It makes it impossible for them to inflate. This is why the gold standard is furiously attacked by all those who expect that they will be benefited by bounties from the seemingly inexhaustible government purse. End quote. I want to take a moment and conduct a quick history lesson about gold from the last 110 years. Here are some comparison stats of gold versus the dollar after the establishment of the Federal Reserve. Did you know that an ounce of gold today has the same or more purchasing power as it did 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago? You obviously cannot say that about the U.S. dollar. Consider this example. In 1962, Motel 6 launched its business. Their catch was, stay with us for only $6 a night. 
Today, that same room rents for 90 bucks or so. Uh, I think that was from a Santa Barbara location. That's a 15 times increase in 60 years. Given the monetary environment in which we live over the course of our lifetimes, that fact probably does not surprise you. Everything is more expensive than 50 or 60 years ago. So is that just normal? No cause for alarm? But think about it. Are Motel 6 rooms bigger than they were in 1962? No. Are they significantly nicer? No. Cleaner? No. You are essentially getting the same product today as you did 60 years ago. However, back in 1962, an ounce of gold bought you six nights at a Motel 6. Today, one ounce of gold buys you 21 nights, demonstrating one example of how gold has outpaced inflation. Or consider this. In 1913, the average annual wage was $633 a year, and gold was about $21 an ounce. So your average wage in gold was about 31 ounces per year. In 1990, the average wage was around $21,000 a year, and gold was just under $400 an ounce. Average wage, 53 ounces of gold per year. So the wage increase over that time period was like 3,000%. Gold's was about 71%, which is a modest 1% a year. Today's average annual wage is in the neighborhood of $40,000 to $50,000. Gold is at about $1,700 an ounce. So that's about 23 to 29 ounces of gold a year earned. That's lower than the 31 ounces back in 1913. Even if you kick up the average income to $75,000 a year, you push the gold earnings up to 44 ounces, which is more than 1913. But guess what? You don't take home your gross pay like you did back in 1913 because back then there was no Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid withholdings. State taxes were minimal back then, and the 16th Amendment had just been ratified by the last state earlier in the year, and it impacted next to nobody with some minimal, measly rate for the highest earners. My point is, back in the day before the vampire federal government slowly sucked the life out of the middle class, what you earned at work, you took home. Today, you're lucky to take home 70% of your pay. That's why back in the day, a household could live off the earnings of one person. Now you can barely get by with both a husband and a wife working full-time and sometimes holding down multiple jobs or having side hustles. We used to argue that our dollar-based wages were simply keeping up with price inflation. That was caused by Bernanke's Federal Reserve constantly bloating of the money supply. But today we're faced with another federal government-produced assault on the middle class. Record levels of price inflation. Food and energy prices are through the roof because of the Federal Reserve. So your earnings buy you even less. That is why libertarians call inflation theft. And the Nobel Committee wants to give these people awards? They should be in prison for willful negligence, not receiving awards. Remember when I said, if you print too many dollars, the holders of those certificates or pieces of paper will redeem them for something of value, i.e. gold or silver. That is, when the dollar is backed by gold or silver. Well, that is exactly what countries around the world were doing in the late 1960s and early 70s. They saw how the Federal Reserve was inflating the U.S. money supply, so they started redeeming their paper dollars for gold since the U.S. claimed the dollar was backed by gold. So Dick Nixon had to put an end to that because he needed the printing press to pay for the war and for LBJ's Great Society. Warfare and welfare is what killed America. You remember that. 
When the history books are written, that's what they will say about this once great country. So the post-1971 U.S. dollar was credit-based, not gold-based. Why is that important? Because the supply of gold is limited, but the supply of credit is endless. Most important, gold-backed money is impossible for politicians to create. Credit is not. The money supply has expanded by over 2,000% since that fateful day in August of 1971. That is why, back then, a gallon of milk cost about a dollar, and the average home was $26,000. Think about the cost of those items today. The rising costs in dollars is called price inflation. It is caused by the fact that there is more physical dollars or credit floating around in the economy, i.e. the expansion of the money supply. These dollars get sucked up at the cash register, whether it's milk or a house. By the way, if you're interested in a deep dive into Nixon's closure of the gold window, check out episode 162. So some of you may be thinking, if Nixon took us off the gold standard or a quasi-gold standard, why didn't the U.S. dollar collapse decades ago? The answer is, Nixon propped the dollar up by coming to an agreement with Saudi Arabia and OPEC for something called the petrodollar. I go into great detail about that in episode 191, but suffice it to say that in return for military assistance, these oil-producing countries agreed to only sell their oil for U.S. dollars, which created, drumroll please, artificial demand for the dollar. So the United States continued to print dollars and the oil-rich nations continued the charade of only accepting dollars for their product until now. Once Biden printed $6 trillion in two years, on top of Trump's $2 trillion in four, on top of Obama's $5 trillion in eight, on top of Bush's $2.5 trillion in eight, the world finally told America to go screw themselves. They no longer agree to trade oil in dollars, which is going to make Americans and investors in dollar-denominated investments very poor. Pay attention when you hear mention of the BRICS nations. That coalition of Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and now a dozen more countries are lining up to join. That will spell the end of the U.S. dollar's dominance globally and spell misery for most of the people listening to this podcast. And just to bring you back to the topic of this podcast, never forget who is responsible for this. Ultimately, it is the Federal Reserve. They are supposed to act in a nonpartisan manner. They should have told Congress and the presidents to go screw themselves when they proposed ever-increasing spending bills. But guess who appoints the Federal Reserve chairman? And guess who advises and consents? I mean, seriously, what does it tell you that Trump nominated Jerome Powell and Biden kept them? Bernanke was nominated by Bush in 2006 and Obama kept him. Greenspan was nominated by Reagan and hung around until Bernanke took the helm. So Clinton kept his ass in the seat, as did Bush Jr. It's incestuous. Continuing to connect the dots and refocus on Bernanke, Peter Schiff had this to say about Ben and the Fed in a recent podcast. Quote, the most incompetent economists work for the Federal Reserve. And if you are incompetent enough, you will be promoted to the chairman of the Fed. End quote. He went on to discuss Bernanke's credentials, which include being one of the architects of the 2008 financial crisis, although the lion's share of blame can be put at the feet of Alan Greenspan. But Ben was the vice chair for most of the time leading up to the 2008 crisis, and he assumed his position in 2006, two years before the crisis hit, and he did nothing to stop it. As a matter of fact, in 2005, Ben told the American people that the subprime mortgage issue was contained. 
It blew up royally 18 months later when he then said, quote, there is not much indication at this point that subprime mortgage issues have spread into the broader mortgage market, which still seems to be healthy, end quote. His containment then led to a global financial meltdown and public bailouts for selected insurance companies, banks, and investment banks. You remember Too Big to Fail? Side note, if you look back at the bailouts in 2008, you will note that the federal government refused to bail out a number of smaller banks. Why do you think that is? Because, as we discussed earlier, one of the objectives of the establishment of the Fed was less competition for the big boys. Mission accomplished. So is Ben incompetent? Is he stupid? I mean, shouldn't you have some understanding of basic economics in order to win the Nobel Prize in economics? I guess it depends on your perspective. Here's how MSN.com portrayed the heroic Bernanke. Quote, by 2009, Bernanke was at the Fed, and the professor with a specialty in the Great Depression was in charge at the height of the Great Recession. Chairman Bernanke went about stabilizing the economy with low interest rates, bank bailouts, and other aggressive remedies, end quote. So he manipulated the market, and that should be rewarded. He manipulated the interest rates, and he bailed out banks and other financial industry players who should have gone bankrupt because of their bad financial decisions. And what do they mean by other aggressive remedies? In the years following the meltdown, the Bernanke-led Fed tried to stimulate the economy via massive money creation, near-zero interest rates, and quantitative easing, where the Fed injects liquidity into the market via purchases of financial assets, including U.S. Treasury bonds, earning him the name Helicopter Ben for his ability to print money and flood the financial system with it. He, of course, was outdone by Jerome Powell, Biden, and Trump. Ron Paul said, quote, Bernanke and Congress should have responded to the meltdown by letting the recession that followed the meltdown run its course. This is the only way the economy can adjust to the market distortions caused by the Fed increases in the money supply and the lowering of interest rates, end quote. What Greenspan and Bernanke sowed, the world is reaping now with generationally high price inflation. Never forget that Bernanke lied to Congress when he told them that the Federal Reserve was not monetizing debt. He told Congress that the Fed had no intention of holding Treasury bonds they purchased in order to print money or inflate the money supply. But the Fed did, indeed, hold them. How else do you explain the Fed's $9 trillion balance sheet? You can explain it because the Fed monetized the debt. Speaking of the Fed's balance sheet, just to give you a sense of the gravity of the situation, a sense of proportion, six years ago, the balance sheet was $4 trillion. Trump and Powell took it to seven through the, all the COVID spending and giveaways. Biden and Powell added another $2 trillion for no reason in the last two years. These people are criminals for what they are doing to our country and our currency. So Ben should have been charged with a crime of lying to Congress, or if that's a bridge too far, he should sure as hell be disqualified from winning a Nobel Prize in economics because he was so wrong. Economists like Bernanke and Powell believe that central banks can and should put people out of work to keep price inflation that they created in check. These central planner imbeciles print trillions of dollars, inflate the money supply, and their solution is to cause a depression i.e. kill jobs, kill the middle class, kill the housing market, cause unprecedented levels of unemployment, all in the effort to stifle consumption and spending. 
I want to end this episode with one final exercise in connecting of the dots. The former head of an institution with a list of failures a mile long was rewarded with a prestigious award. The least the committee could have done was to list the failures of the recipient and his organization. Since they did not, I will. The Federal Reserve is responsible for booms and busts in the real estate market, in the stock market, and in the economy as a whole, as massive amounts of malinvestment are made with all the excess money floating around in the economy and the manipulated low interest rates. The Fed causes price inflation by printing money, and they tell us it's transitory. They bail out favored institutions and let others fail. They artificially manipulate interest rates while maintaining an unconstitutional monopoly power to increase money supply backed by nothing. The Fed oversaw the stock market crashes of 1921, 1929, and 1987. They oversaw the Great Depression and the recessions of 1953, 57, 69, 1975, 81, 2008, 2022, and the coming depression that America faces today. And they oversaw 1,000% inflation that has destroyed 95% of the dollar's purchasing power. Through all of those failures, Congress was too cowardly to require an audit of the Fed so we can really see what the hell's going on over there. All the Fed does is manipulate the free market, and in so doing, does nothing but cause harm to Americans and the American economy. And now the suffering extends globally, given the use of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. Well, I'm here to tell you that game is over. The coming pain to Americans will be enormous, and you can cast the blame directly at the feet of Ben Bernanke, Alan Greenspan, Janet Yellen, Jerome Powell, George H.W. Bush, his son, Bill Clinton, Obama, Trump, and Biden, and all the Congresses that followed all these people did nothing about this 100-year-in-the-making collapse and throw in the individual states who have sat idly by sucking at the federal teat all that time. Here's the best part. Guess who's going to fix the coming collapse? The same people who caused it, the Federal Reserve. They're rolling out the central bank digital currency, which was the topic of a recent episode, episode 216. Just like Ron Paul said about Bernanke winning the Nobel Prize is like giving the fire safety award to an arsonist, so too is relying on an entity with a 100% failure rate, the federal government as a whole and the Federal Reserve specifically, to fix a problem that they created. With the Fed, we got and have inflation economic chaos and turmoil, and political upheaval. Without the Fed, we could have stability, economic prosperity, and political tranquility. So you tell me, does a guy like Ben Bernanke, who ran a corrupt, inept, failed, monopolistic organization with an atrocious track record for doing any good for the country, or the world for that matter, a guy whose personal record of failures could fill volumes, does a guy like that deserve a once prestigious award Given how the Nobel Committee flushed their credibility down the toilet with Obama's award, why not give Ben Bernanke a prize for economics? I'll leave you with this. One critic put it this way. Giving Ben Bernanke the Nobel Prize in economics may be the drunkest decision of all time. And that's the truth about Ben Bernanke, the Nobel Prize, and the Federal Reserve. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. 